Let's start with defining trauma. And trauma is an overwhelming, it's our response to an overwhelming event. And that when we respond to something that's very scary or dangerous, um, we all understand what that first response is like. You know, your heart starts beating faster, you know, you, you get clammy hands and you breathe faster, you might gasp, you startle. When we're in that perceived threat environment, then our body goes into autopilot and does all of those responses. They're called your instinctual responses. And what we wanna do then is fight, flee, or um, freeze. And uh, for children, very often, they can't fight, they can't get away, and so they freeze. And in that frozen state, because they can't get away, that leads to what's called a thwarted intention. You're listening to the Refraining Ministries podcast, providing help, hope, healing, and humor for people walking through pain. Here's our host, Colleen Swindoll Thompson. Thompson, and I have a revolutionary interview that I'm going to share with you today with Jolene Philo. Jolene, welcome today. Thank you, Colleen. It's great to be here. You are kind of riding on the initial cusp of a huge tidal wave, and that is you're doing studies on PTSD. We originally did this or did an interview about that a while ago. But because of your new book, Does My Child Have PTSD? What to Do When Your Child is Hurting on the Inside. You and your husband have been married for 38 years, have two children. So this book has just come out, but actually it's been in process for a long, long time. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, uh, as you said, my husband and I were married, uh, have been married for 38 years. We got married in 1977. In 1978, we moved out to the remote northwest corner of South Dakota where we lived for seven years, and our son was born there. Alan was born in 1982 after a very quick 90-mile trip to the hospital, where he was born not much long after that. Um, shortly thereafter, by, he was born around midnight. By morning, the doctors felt that something was um, wrong. He was having issues breathing, so they sent him to Rapid City by ambulance, where he was diagnosed with a tracheal esophageal fistula, now known as esophageal atresia. What that means is his esophagus wasn't connected to his stomach. So he was life flighted to Omaha, where he had surgery at the University of Nebraska Hospital before he was a day old. He was in NICU for about um, two and a half weeks. And during that time, he made quite a rock star recovery. We were told during his recovery, uh, we could tell he was in pain, and we were told that um, that's because he didn't have pain medication because newborns didn't feel pain, and so they didn't need pain medication. So I went through his recovery process just fine. Uh, we brought him home. At two months, he had com complications that led to another surgery in Omaha. He had to be life flighted again. Um, he was in the hospital just a few days that time, but he... To, to make a long story short, to get his esophagus to function correctly, he had a total of seven surgeries by the time he was five and hundreds of hospital procedures. I shouldn't say hundreds, but 
dozens and dozens, I bet over a hundred hospital procedures and tests. You, you just stop counting, don't you? Yeah, you just, you can't keep track of it all anymore. Um, and after that, uh, his esophagus healed, we moved to Boone, Iowa, where we still live in 1985 to be a little closer to doctors. And uh, he had his last surgery here and then a final, his last surgery as a very young child in Des Moines and one more surgery at age 15 in Kansas City. But for the most part, other than, than that, he did very well. He was very bright, creative little guy, um, did well in school. But starting in, especially in middle school, school, we started seeing some changes in his behavior. And uh, those continued. He ran away for the first time just after he turned 18 and that began a pattern of running that began until age 26 when he finally called us and said, I need some help. Um, can you help me find what's going on with me? Now, my husband and I by then suspected it had something to do with those early surgeries because his home life had been very secure other than that. He hadn't lost any important people in his life. We hadn't moved very much. Uh, my husband and I had a good marriage. But it wasn't until 2008 when when Alan was 26 that he was diagnosed and truly by the grace of God we were led to a treatment facility in in Morgantown West Virginia not far from where Alan lived at the time and uh, he was diagnosed we filled out assessments and he was diagnosed with PTSD caused by all that early medical surgery he went through an intensive week of treatment after that and it really did change his life he came out still quite fragile still had to learn how to live now and, and adjust to uh, having been treated for his PTSD, but learning to cope with the vestiges of it and to manage it. And since then, he has done quite well. He still has to uh, be careful and work on managing his PTSD, um, you know, which can be exacerbated again by stress. But he, for the most part, he's doing very well. Um, because he's an adult now, he's 33, I, I don't like to tell a whole lot more of his story it's Alan's story to tell, and so uh, rather than sharing a lot about that, I, I tend to focus on um, what happened to him from birth up till age 26 when he was first treated. Well, what I didn't realize is that we didn't define PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. It's starting to become more and more of a mental health discussion, but it's been associated with veterans, and yet... This has nothing to do with being a war veteran or, or anything like that. It's totally from birth. Unpack for me what that is like and what they're finding as far as children who are traumatized at such a young age. Sure. Well, um, trauma, let's start with defining trauma. And trauma is uh, an, an overwhelming, it's our response to an overwhelming event. Um, and that when we respond to something that's very scary or dangerous, um, we all understand what that first response is like. You know, your heart starts beating faster, you know, you, you get clammy hands, then you breathe faster, you might gasp, you startle. And when we're in that perceived threat environment, then our body goes into autopilot and does all of those responses. They're called your instinctual responses. And what we wanna do then is fight, flight, fight, flee, or um, freeze. And uh, for children, very often, they can't fight, they can't get away, and so they freeze. 
And in that frozen state, because they can't get away, that leads to what's called a thwarted intention. When the, the intention is thwarted, they have to figure out some way to survive the scary situation they are in. And, and they'll feel body sensations, you know, they'll, they'll feel any pain that's going on them, but they might be able to push it away. A lot of children and even adults, you hear people say all the time, while it was happening, I felt like I was watching a movie of myself. And that's yes. kind of a way of disassociating or pulling yourself away from the event so it's not so, uh, so scary or, yeah. or so immediate. Um, children also will obey automatically during those situations. They will do whatever is asked of them in that situation and later feel quite guilty about that. Why didn't I fight back? But they were doing whatever they could do to survive in the moment, and that's what they did. And, and, and that's important and that's good. That's what our body is, is made to do. Then after the threat goes away, the body will go into what's called self-repair. So you might see little children, you know, holding their blankie and sucking their thumb, or an older child might continually wash their hands or rock back and forth. Um, they may uh, play video games incessantly just to kind of, again, get that distance and repair their mind. Now, okay, but I, that can also be obsessive compulsive disorder. That could be autism. That could look like... Yeah. ADHD, that's tough. That is, and that's the problem with many mental illnesses is that they look a lot like each other on the surface, but um, the behaviors are caused by a different root problem. And so the whole issue is getting to what really causes this behavior and then treating that. So, so anyway, we all have those traumas and children have them and more things are scary to children than we think. Things like divorce and moving and adoption, even though it may be a wonderful adoption, there's a separation from the parent, the loss of a loved one like a grandmother or a parent or a sibling. But just because a child or an adult is traumatized doesn't mean they're going to get PTSD. However, if they aren't able to resolve um, the, the trauma that occurred to them, if they aren't able to process it, and come up with a story to remind them that the trauma is over, if they can't dispel that energy that gets stuck inside the brain and the body, if that continues after three months and they show symptoms after that three months, then it is likely that they have PTSD and that is when a clinician will diagnose it as PTSD. So PTSD then, I kind of think of as trauma's bigger, meaner cousin. It's like the difference between a skinned knee and an infected knee. If you skin your knee, you clean it up, you have somebody, if you're a child, you have someone help you clean it up, you disinfect it, you talk about what happened, you put on a band-aid, you watch it carefully, and eventually the, the skin knee clears up and everything's okay. Now, if nobody takes care of that skin knee, the, the little bits of dirt get caught in there, it gets infected, and what was a minor wound can turn into something major. And it takes a lot more work to clean it up, it takes more time, and even once it is cleaned up and healed, there may be a scar left behind. So that's what PTSD is. It takes longer to clear it up, it needs more work, it needs more time, and there may be emotional scars left behind that are always tender for the child and that can cause not major pain, but the memory of pain and, and just require a little bit more help to get over. 
One of the things that I have found in some of the research that I've been doing on this, Jolene, is that when the child is born, even when the child is in the womb, if the mother has anxiety, the cortisol level is high, which goes into the child. And then after birth, they tend to be a bit more sensitive. And and then the brain continues to form. But if they're, if they're traumatized, they have no skill for coping with that. Then you have a child that <clears throat> is kind of frozen and it freezes parts of the brain. In fact, one of the things that you write in your book, you say trauma is the antithesis of empowerment. Trauma is an event or events that shock children and overwhelm them. They feel powerless. And if left untreated, this affects the rest of the child's life. And for your son, it came out in things that looked like sensory integration disorder, attention deficit disorder, um, social anxiety disorder. So how did you finally get the diagnosis when people are looking for this? How do they get the diagnosis? Well, to get a diagnosis, you need to go to um, some kind of a mental health clinic, hopefully one, well, you probably, you may not know at first that it's trauma related. So you just want to find a good mental health clinician, whether it's a therapist, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, and you want someone who has experience with children. Um, and they will use a, a variety of tests and assessments that are based on information found in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, um, the DSM. I'm sorry, I'm kind of murdering that name. <laughs> it just escaped me. <laughs> That's all right. Um, but anyway, they will use a variety of different assessments and they will, um, they will look at the child's behavior. The younger the child, the more the parents have to provide that information. As children get older and more verbal, they're able to provide that information. And they also will take a history of the child. So if there is a history of things that can be traumatizing to children, that will be taken in mind. And then um, a diagnosis would be made based on what they find in the assessments and the history. Now, one of the things that we have found, because this is part of Jonathan's diagnosis, is that the cheek swab, the DNA study, a genetic study, and um, a sleep study have all come together and pointed in the same direction. And so that is, I suggest that they also see if they can find a physician. Usually it's a scientific research doctor or psychiatrist who could help. We could always t send them to Steve Gersovich. There you go. <laughs> um, and, and I think that's really interesting how they are finding now um, physical evidence of mental illness and that another thing that can be done sometimes might be um, an MRI or some kind of a brain scan that can actually show that um, parts of the brain are smaller mm -hmm. or light up more during traumatic events than mm -hmm. is normal. Those things are pretty expensive and it kind of depends on where you live. I'm in a rural area and a lot of that isn't available. So a lot of it is still done, you know, just using the DSM and assessments. But if you can get some of the physical evidence, that's great too. Well, it really is. And I know that the Amen Clinic in California, the Met Clinic in here in Texas, there's also another clinic that is run by Dr. Jonathan Walker, who does neurofeedback, and he did a huge assessment on John's brain, and it was like an EEG on steroids. <laughs> but let me move on to some statistics because we, 
We can't know, well, I mean, we're finding out now that we can know when they are pre-verbal, but your son's behavior started to show a difference in middle school. I found some bullying statistics, which are profoundly shocking. It says bullying is most often used to describe a form of harassment perpetuated by someone who is in some way more powerful. Researchers generally accept that it contains four essential elements. First, behavior is aggressive and negative. Second, the behavior is carried out repeatedly. Third, the behavior occurs in a relationship where there is an imbalance of power between the parties. And fourth, behavior is purposeful. Now here's the shocking part. 83% of girls and 79% of boys report being bullied in school or online in a recent study that I found. 75% of school shootings have been linked to harassment or bullying on the shooter side. And by the age of 30, if these individuals have not gotten help, 40% of the boys were identified as having been bullied and they had been arrested three or more times. The teacher response, and I experienced this because my son was bullied and I got a letter from the principal one time saying how, how dare I say my son was bullied. So the teacher response, only one in four respond and often do nothing at all. Now, what do you do with that? I think we just realize basically that bullying is another cause of trauma. It yeah. can cause trauma. And so if you know your child is bullied, has been bullied or is being bullied, um, you need to um, work through that process that and possibly get some counseling for it. Um, our son was bullied in sixth grade and the school handled it really well. Um, really? Yes, they did. Um, of course, our son made a lucky punch at a boy who was a good foot taller than him <laughs> and gave him a bloody nose. So both well, boys, yeah, both boys had to miss a few days of school and it was near the end of the school year. But for, so far as our son was concerned, nobody bothered him then he, when he went into middle school and high school because of that <laughs> lucky punch. So, well, but if you have a child that's frozen, then they have that automatic obedience thing. And then you get a victim of, victimization yes. Yes. behavior and that's another mental health issue it is yes and so it re is really important to get treatment I think it's also really important to know and to remember that whoever is doing the bullying probably has been bullied or yes. um, abused in some way by a parent maybe bullying through the parent physical abuse and so that child is also frozen they're all that child is trying to do what he can to regain power or she and to regain control, which is the way people who have PTSD live. It's all about doing whatever you need to do to keep your environment safe so that that means you have to be in total control at all times. So let's go into the different categories of trauma and some of those different symptoms. Well, I think what you're talking about um, there is there are actually three categories of symptoms that um, the DSM uses, and they are called um, intrusive symptoms, arousal symptoms, and avoidance symptoms. 
Intrusive symptoms are the first category, and those are the, sim the uh, symptoms we see when the memory of the traumatic event intrudes, just kind of barges into the brain again of the person who was traumatized. So they may be, we think of it in movies a lot, you know, where somebody's just going along and all of a sudden there's a memory of that former event and they, they change their, their behavior changes or they do something crazy that seems crazy or radical. Um, and children have those intrusive memories too. They may be playing and all of a sudden the memory comes back even though they've tried to push it down. So we think of that as um, if, if it happens when they're sleeping, they'll have nightmares. If it happens during the day and often at school, it may appear to be that they are daydreaming, but in their mind they are reliving that event. And so another thing that happens with those intrusive symptoms in children is that because they're distracted a lot and their attention is not on the teacher or whatever's going in the, on in the classroom, children can tend to have um, to fall behind in their classes, in their schoolwork. Well, and the teacher gets irritated. And the teacher gets irritated because, yeah, because the child's not paying attention and it's, it's a lose-lose situation. You know. Well, and that need, that means that teachers need to be awakened to this information yes. because it is so pervasive. Yes. So it's you have intrusive symptoms. Then you have what other category? Okay, the next category then would be arousal symptoms. And these are the ones that happen when something triggers the memory. Um, it doesn't just intrude, but something happens in the environment to trigger that memory. Maybe there's a smell that's similar to the smell that was there when the trauma happened, or a sound, or a person, or just a similar situation. It could be the same color, a room that looks the same, or a building that looks the same, or, or whatever. And then when that happens, when you're aroused by a trigger, then the child goes into that state of high alert, which is also called hyperarousal, and they are constantly on the lookout for this dangerous thing. So they'll startle easily, they'll gasp quickly. Um, they may tend to be uh, over aggressive. They may get into fights easily. They may try to run away. Um, well, that's more of an avoidance symptom. I shouldn't say that one. So if in that arousal state, they're just ready more to fight. They're gonna, they're gonna fight. Um, and do everything they can to stay safe. And I think sometimes that's where the bullying is. It's kids that are in that constant state of hyperarousal. So they're always gonna be the aggressive one so that nobody can hurt them. Well, one of the things we learned with Jonathan was that he was in pretty much a constant state of yes. hyperarousal. Yes. And that meant the, the parts of his brain, executive functioning skills, the prefrontal cortex, all of the amygdala, all those parts that that help us function in society were f kind of frozen or covered with a blanket of adrenaline. Yes, yes. And he was not able to, he has he has struggled to function. It's that, that they are, you know, they're always wondering is something gonna happen? Yes, it's my son described it too as, um, he said after his like fourth day of treatment at his original treatment, he said, for the first time in my life, I'm not looking over my shoulder, waiting for somebody to take, take me into surgery again. That's that constant state of hyperarousal. So you can see where that's gonna lead to issues for kids. And then the third uh, category of symptoms are avoidance symptoms, and that's just like it sounds. They'll do everything they can to avoid being in a situation that will be traumatizing. And most likely, 
like the situation they were involved in before. So a child that's bullied at school is going to do everything he or she can to avoid going to school. They're going to have constant headaches and tummy aches, or if they're if they're being bullied at scouts or something, they're going to come up with excuses to not go to, to scouts. Uh, they, they may try to run away from anyone that reminds them of the trauma. That's an avoidance symptom. So anything they can do to keep away from whatever happened to them or keep from getting into a similar situation, those are the avoidance symptoms. Well, I did read um, when I was studying the bullying thing that teachers and parents need to become aware of these symptoms becoming withdrawn, any physical injuries or differences that they see, refusal to ride the bus, which so much bullying happens on the bus. I've met three people in the last two days mm -hmm. who have told me about that. Yeah. Change in sleep habits, grades dropping, and they talk of suicide or suicide ideation or kind of a doom and gloom. You know, the world's going to end. Yes. Thing. Why should I bother um, thinking about my future because there's no future for me kind of thing. But as you read through those, aren't those the same symptoms we look for in someone who's depressed, a child who's depressed? So, yes. So again, you know, I don't think we can expect teachers or, or uh, family members or daycare providers to know exactly what's going on. They just need to be the ones that say, you know, I'm seeing a lot of worrying behaviors in your child and symptoms that make me wonder if there's something more that could use some, some sort of mental health care therapy. And just gently then help parents, um, help kind of point them in the direction of what they need. But again, uh, this is such a new field yeah. um, there, that the word isn't out yet. Um, we really need to do a lot of educating of our educators and other people who care for children. Well, what's interesting is that leads to the next question, which what help is available? What has science proven to um, help, like with your son, the, the one-week inpatient clinic? What else is out there? Sure. Um, and the, the place where our son was treated, I think, is really important if you've got someone who life is just, there's nowhere else to go. You know, you're at a crisis point. And that is called Intensive Trauma Therapy, and it is in Morgantown, West Virginia. Their website is traumatherapy.us. So you can- I'm going to write that. that down. Sure. Traumatherapy.us. And again, Morgantown, West Virginia, intensive trauma therapy. And uh, sometimes it's covered by insurance, right? It might be. It might okay. be. Um, I think that's maybe starting to get a little better, but we've got a long way with insurance covering mental health care equitably. Right. Uh, so that's one possibility. But there are a lot of kids don't need that yet. There are many other options, probably much closer to home. There's a really, really good book, or an author that's written a couple good books. Uh, Peter Levine and Maggie Klein have written several books on treating children. Uh, and they have come up with a system called somatic experiencing. Somatic experiencing. And you can just uh, do an internet search of Peter Levine, Maggie Klein, uh -huh. somatic experiencing, and you will get to their website. I'm trying... Um, Trying to Shapiro is the one who did EMDR. Yes, that's, and I'll get to that one. But okay. this one, this one, there are some books that they've written for parents. Um, and uh, 
I think it's like taming, taming the trauma tiger or something like that. I'll look it up and I'll put it in our show notes. Yes, but they have a couple really, really good books out. One of them is a, a bigger manual that's more for clinicians. One is a smaller version that they've written for parents. And it actually has exercises you can do with a child who's gone through a trauma long before that three-month period where it may be PTSD to help <laughs> them work through that. Another thing that can be used, uh, as you mentioned, EMDR. Now, let me think. I never get this right. Eye movement desensitization yeah. retraining, reprocessing. There you go. You got it. And that began in the 1990s kind of by accident. A woman uh, who, was, who was a therapist was walking and had kind of pro trying to process some um, traumatic memories and realized that if she, when she kind of, daydreamed and let her eyes move back and forth, it helped lower her anxiety level. And it is now, and they think they have not figured out why it works, but there, there's probably more um, research studies showing that it is effective than any other method. And it involves accessing both the right and the left brain. Um, so that, because what we find in people who've been traumatized, especially children, is that the connections, the wiring that yeah. goes between the right and the left brain of the corpus callosum, there aren't as many connections. And yeah. so somehow this helps repair the connections and get the trauma out of the right brain where it's trapped as sensations and images, and it's wordless and it's always in the present, into the left brain where it's, uh, you can talk about it and have words to describe it and tell yourself that it's over and you don't need to be afraid anymore. Um, and that treatment can be used with very young children, about age three, and it's good, especially if the child was traumatized in, from birth to three when they're pretty much nonverbal. You need a treatment that's going to access the right brain and those nonverbal sensations. So that's a good treatment, and you, if you're looking for someone to treat that, you need to find someone who has EMDR training that has somewhat of a trauma focus and has experience with children. Uh, another method that works somewhat, uh, it has, has a proven, proven track record, but not always so much for trauma and not with young children, but it can be used somewhat, um, is uh, CBD which is uh, cognitive behavioral uh, therapy, CBT, uh, excuse me, with a trauma focus. And you want to, again, this will only work if your child was traumatized from when, when they were verbal on because it's a form of talk therapy. And you can only treat with words what you remember with words. So it might work, and it's a method of kind of retraining your mind, learning how to look for triggers, how to become mindful, how to talk to yourself. And parents can often go in with their children for that treatment and learn things that they can do to coach their kids and help them. So that can help. Okay. Um, one of the things about CBT, because I have had, I had a therapist and did some CBT and he said, all your best thinking got you right here. So let's work on your thinking right. and then we'll become a little bit more successful. And it was profoundly Mm -hmm. effective because as Romans 12 2 talks about us to um, renew our minds yes. daily I mean it's scriptural mm -hmm. so CBT and there's some there's one more that I want to mention that's kind of just coming into into the fore now and it I think would be more for older children and adults mm -hmm. also and it's called dialectic behavioral training DBT 
And okay. uh, it's similar in some ways to cognitive behavioral therapy, but I think it goes a little deeper and um, it maybe is works more with trauma issues. And again, it's more about working with a therapist over a long period of time. And it is kind of a retraining of the mind of starting to recognize, okay, when this happens, it triggers. And instead of letting your body go into that, your mind go into that extinctual response, being able, learning to stop and think through it and go ahead. So that's a new field that bears looking into. Um, Jolene, since depression is now known as the number one disability, and because it costs the country billions of dollars, and because um, one in four people will have a depressive episode in within a year or a year span, would you suggest then that they look into the timeline of their life and examine were there areas or moments that I felt totally out of control? Because depression is a massive byproduct of anxiety. Yes. I would say if you have, if you are dealing with depression or anxiety or panic or any kind of phobia, I would really um, encourage you to, to look back or your child's dealing with any of those, look back for those traumatic moments and look into what can cause trauma and especially what can cause trauma in childhood because we tend to brush over those things when we're adults. Oh yeah, yeah, my parents got a divorce, but it's no big deal. Oh yeah, you know, um, if it's not something that we, we identify as highly traumatic like sexual or physical abuse or neglect, we tend to overlook all the other things that are very traumatic to kids. A lot of people overlook medical trauma um, you know, I still yes. encounter people that say, well, but that was for your son's own good. That shouldn't be traumatic. Well, when you're six months old laying on a gurney with your parents watching while somebody pokes something down your throat and you're cold and you're hungry because you couldn't eat for eight hours before this and your parents aren't doing anything and they do this to you three times a week. As a six month old, you're not thinking, oh, but this is going to be good for me in the long run. It's okay. <laughs> It's well, it, maybe it is good for them, but that's not the discussion. They the discussion is the trauma. Yeah, they can't think that way. So we need to look back at our own trauma if we're depressed or anxious or going through panic. We need to look back at our own histories with our child's eyes, not our adult eyes, and see what would that have looked, looked like? Could that be traumatic? And if, if it is, um, try some of those things like EMDR, is there are lots of therapists around and you may need to look till you find a really good one that can help you but it's a pretty um pretty quick and elegant way of of dealing with your trauma and a lot of insurance will pay for that yes. um, i was having some issues just a year ago because of some, some things going on in our family that were causing me to kind of get stuck back when our son was first born which was very traumatic for me all the things we went through then. And my sister, who's a mental health care clinician, said, you know, maybe you should try some EMDR and just help process those memories. And I, I met with a therapist once a week for about two months, and it made a world of difference. It didn't get really? rid of the memories, but I have more distance from them. And they aren't, I, all the old emotions don't come flooding back every time I think about them. So, you know, that's a great place to start. I had a therapist tell me once, I said, well, how do you know when you're dealing with a child 
if it's um, bipolar or if it's yeah. uh, ADHD or if it's PTSD. And, and she said, well, you know, PTSD is pretty easy to treat. So we just go in and we treat for that and then we see what's left over afterwards and deal with that. And the PTSD isn't there muddying the waters anymore. That is just so amazing. Yeah. So I remember driving down the freeway when Jonathan was a baby because he was immune deficient and, and ill all the time. And we would be on the highway and he would see the hospital and scream. <laughs> And I, I remember it like yesterday, and I remember having to hold him down. And the nurse finally said, we need to pray when we were trying to find an IV, uh, a vein, trying to get an IV going. And I I look back and I think, that was traumatic for me. Mm -hmm. In fact, you write in your book, which I think is so interesting, during Alan's treatment, the doctor came out and said, so how's mom? And you closed your book and you looked up and tucked it away and thought, well, I'm okay. But yet you had a different internal response to that later on, or you reflected on it, you said. Yes, I did. I thought about that for a long time afterwards. I was like, well, how's mom? Well, I'm, I'm just fine. You know, I'm, yeah. my son's I'm doing 26. What I have to do. I've, I've, you know, I was a teacher through that time and I was a good teacher and I've had a good life and my marriage is good. And well, I'm just fine. And I think we forget what we've, we've gone through and that um, it's hard to be fine. It goes against everything we, we've been given by God to be good parents, to see our children dealing with these issues and to not be able to be the ones that comfort them and not be able to fix things. And that more than likely we have some issues of our own to deal with. And the more I talk about this and the more places I go, the more I hear that. I, I was at a conference this weekend and one of the questions at the end was that this mom who felt so guilty, she was dealing with a lot of guilt because she was grieving that her, for her child who had special needs, but she knew of so many other parents who had lost children. And so, <clears throat> and so she shouldn't be, she shouldn't be grieving because they were the only ones that had the right to grieve. And so she was feeling guilty and she'd gotten herself in this she gotten herself caught in this big kind of hamster wheel. And my response was, you know, grief is grief and, and loss is loss. Um, I, I grieved for years because my son didn't get to wear his Halloween costume the first year because he ended up in the hospital. And I felt guilty about that until I realized, no, that's okay. That's part of your story and you lost something. And we all should be willing to grieve those things. But, and I think we have to remember that parents of kids with special needs, and especially with PTSD, are living with the constant stress of what their children, of their children's erratic behavior. And we really need to be mindful that that can cause um, PTSD in parents too. It's called secondary PTSD. Well, or complex PTSD. I was yes. listening to a specialist this morning out of um, University of San Francisco. And she was saying that caregivers usually have a shortened lifespan yeah. because of the trauma and the intensity because the cortisol and always on fight or flight and then that affects other organs of the body that mm -hmm. caregivers and people who are caring for Alzheimer's patients usually have PTSD and have brain scans that show up different from more typical brain scans. Yeah. 
Yeah. So how did you answer the woman about guilt? Because parental guilt would be, it is, I'm a parent mm -hmm. and my son has this. So I, I just said, you know, you, you need to just tell yourself, you need to remind yourself that uh, you don't have to feel guilty. You were dealing with a situation you weren't prepared for. You're still dealing with that. Other people don't understand. You're doing the best you can, you know. And and I think I didn't say this to her, but I wish I had. That that we need to remember that that is a spiritual battle. Um, that that's something our enemy often uses. He tries to make us feel guilty about things that we shouldn't feel guilty about. And so when we start feeling those things, we just need to lift it up in prayer and say, God, you know. Um, show me if there is something I need to change. And if there isn't, would you please just help me deal with the guilt and take it away? Actually, what I'm thinking is now that um, the PTSD is becoming more known and people are hearing about this book and I'm hearing their stories, I'm thinking there's probably a new book in the works that's going to be about post-traumatic stress disorder and parents of kids with special needs. And, and oh my. them deal with the yes, stress. Right. It's huge. It's huge. Well, it's huge because <clears throat> you're always on a quest yes. to find out how can I help my child? Because most decent parents, at the least, want their child to have a happy childhood and to grow and to be successful and develop and all that. So when that is inhibited or stopped, there is so much stress. Yes. And then when you have to go to the specialist and then when you have to plan the therapies and all that goes into physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech and language therapy, and then they're often bullied because they are slower. And the other piece too is that so many kids um, with special needs, not necessarily just PTSD, so many of them have, have disturbed sleep. And so there are parents that are totally sleep deprived. I mean, new parents are always sleep deprived. But <laughs> right. hopefully that kind of levels out after a while where, you know, if you've got a child with some significant special needs, you may be sleep deprived for decades. I, I was pretty sure that my kids were in college before I thought I caught up on sleep from my son's first four years. And then if you, if you have a child with medical needs and you're in a hospital situation or a NICU, there are these monitors and things <laughs> beeping and, you know, codes all the time. It's a very stressful environment. Well, that's why we did the sleep study, and we did find out that Jonathan has one of five REM sleeps. I have two. Oh. He, yeah, that's why I'm so <laughs> weird. <laughs> that's why you need to write the book. Yeah. But I think that's fantastic because sleep studies show so much because that's the brain's time where it, in REM sleep, where it dumps out the bad and hopefully helps you recover and find yourself rested in the morning. Yes. But there are fatigue studies and fatigue scores that can be checked. There are all kinds of ways to test how well rested you are. Mm -hmm. So write that book. I will. I'll start tomorrow. <laughs> I will. Exactly. Jolene, I want to bring in the Lord's part of this because he is sovereign. And so many parents and individuals just struggle with that concept and that truth that how could he allow this to happen to my child so as i was prayerfully preparing this morning i thought of isaiah 53 and i took sections of it and i want to read it 
to provide hope because there is someone who does understand exactly what we are going through. And it says, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest of griefs. He was despised. He was, he was despised and we did not care, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. Get those words. Mm -hmm. He was beaten. He was whipped so that we would be healed. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was humiliated and he, he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. But then the Lord adds in this passage, because these sorrows would result, well, I'm sorry, one of the commentaries that I read, they said, because all of these sorrows would result in the pardon and recovery of, an, of all of the sinners and bring them to a knowledge of Christ, the whole work was one of benevolence and Yahweh was pleased with it as a work of love. The fact that God saw and allowed his son to be crushed, despised, I can't imagine, but he gets it. Yes. And he gets us. He gets it from both perspectives. He gets it as a father who's had to watch a child yeah. suffer and deal with trauma. And he gets it as the child who has suffered the trauma. So, you know, if it wasn't for those, those verses, which are very um, important ones to me too, I meditate on those often. You know, that I, I don't understand why you're allowing this to happen, but I do know that you're walking with me through it and you're walking with my child. Well, and the word grief in that passage includes the whole of the person, the body, the mind, the soul, and the spirit. And so he's acquainted with the entirety of us. And that has been most comforting to me as we have been discovering these things that we're challenged with um, in helping John learn to function. As we close, Jolene, what are some words that you could say to all of us, um, to those with PTSD, to those teachers, parents, church attenders, anyone, some encouraging words as we close. Well, first of all, I would say to parents, um, PTSD can be treated, and the sooner your child is diagnosed and the younger they can be treated, the better. Because, and they can be treated successfully. Don't, be, don't beat yourself up if it takes some years to get to that. But the sooner you can be treated, the easier it is because the brain hasn't developed those habits of thinking so they aren't as entrenched as they would be. They won't be as hard to change. Um, so keep seeking treatment. Advocate for your child. If you know your child has experienced a trauma and is not the same child they were before, um, before the trauma, keep at it until you find a good clinician. If you don't find a clinician you like, at first I had a friend also who told me, she said, you know, Try a new clinician, make sure there's someone that's focused on the child, pays attention to the child, yeah. and then give it like three to six months. And if you don't see any change, then move on. Don't keep going back to the same person. 
but keep at it and you will eventually find what you need. So that's a word for parents. For those of you who are onlookers, teachers, or, or people who love the child, extended family, pastors, children's ministry workers, if you see some of these behaviors in a child and you suspect that there may be trauma in their past or wonder if there could be, you know, just talk to the parents and tr see if you can learn a little bit more of the story. And if there seems to be some trauma back there, maybe gently suggest and, and offer to help them find what they need. Direct them to this, this interview or to my book, Does My Child Have PTSD? So they can learn about it and maybe find that help. But be very slow to judge because having a child who has PTSD and, and trying to keep up with their fears it's, it's not like anything else you've ever experienced. and It really isn't. So be encouraging instead of judgmental. <laughs> I think that's a great word, especially because um, for the Christian community, we have God's word and we know that he is sovereign. And we need a place to go yes. because you're right. It is one of the hardest mental health challenges. And yet there's hope because we have a sovereign God and there's hope because we're learning and we, have, and we can get help. And we have you who can write books on it. <laughs> Jolene, thank you so much for being a part of this today. I so appreciate your message and I hope that it is shared. They can go to Jolene Philo, differentdream.com. Is that where they would find you? Yes, that's where they'll find me. All right. Thank you for this time together. I want to leave the audience with the question that now you, that this information is here, what is going to hold you back from pursuing help? Because what you do and getting help will then help others. So pursue that and let's trust the Lord as we walk with him. How's that sound, Jolene? That sounds like the perfect combination. All right. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. You can find the show notes and referenced resources in the podcast description or on our website, reframingministries.com. If you were impacted by today's conversation, I would be so thankful if you rated and reviewed the podcast, shared it on your social media, or share it with some friends who you think would be touched. You can email me personally at reframingministries at insight.org. If you'd like to be updated on reframing's activities and content, please feel free to subscribe on our website. Thank you again for joining us today at Reframing Ministries. If you enjoyed this podcast, let us know in the comments on our website. Our desire is to provide biblical help, hope, healing, and humor for people walking through unique and challenging segments in life. And in order to provide for more people, we love your support through prayer, sharing this content with friends, and partnered support. Reframing Ministries and Insight for Living Ministries operate entirely and only on your generous gifts and donations. You can partner with us and donate to Reframing Ministries through our website. The Reframing Ministries podcast is a production of Insight for Living Ministries.